Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Stress makes it hard to manage our mental health. You're probably saying to yourself, yeah, Khalil, tell me something I don't know. And I get that. But it's worth pointing out because we have all been under a lot of stress over the past few years. It can be a lot, almost too much, if you don't know where to look. And if you can't afford to get the help you need. Later this hour, we'll bring you a special Citizen Nashville episode all about mental health. We'll hear from folks who are personally navigating through this every day and then invite a few local experts to round up the resources you need. But first, WPLN News just wrapped up a series on the deterioration and sale of an affordable housing complex in East Nashville. The series is called Displaced, reported by our own Ambriel Crutchfield. She joins us now. Ambriel, welcome to the show. Thank you. Also with us is Virginia Holland, resident of Rivers Chase. Virginia, thank you for taking time with us today. Thank you for having me. So, Virginia, I want to start with you. How are you How are you and your family doing right now? Well, right now we're kind of, uh, I don't know, we're just like unsure about what's going to happen, what the next step is from here, um, because we still have not found anything. You know, we've heard some of the horror stories about the living conditions at the River Chase ex- apartments. Mm-hmm. Tell us, what, what, what has your experience been like? Uh, my experience there has it's kind of been on a deplorable, in my opinion, it's been deplorable uh, considering other places where I've lived. Uh, that was an inf- immediate infestation of rats mm-hmm. uh, upon me moving in. You know, uh, a week into the apartment, they were coming out like, hey, as if I moved into their space, mm-hmm. you know, um, and just kind of fought watching the cracks kind of getting wider and, you know, become more defined over the time that I've been there. And I've been there a total of four years now. Um, I've had raining inside of my units, you know, and they would come and do patchwork over, over the roof, you know. The inspectors would come in and inspect, you know, and I would point out little certain stuff and would just be like, well, you know, hey, what about this? And, you know, they'd be like, oh, well, you know, we're not going to worry about that right now. Or, hmm. well, did you tell, you know, did you talk to the manager at the office about, you know, what you're complaining about? And I would be like, well, uh, no, because I'm thinking, you know, because you're an inspector, you know, maybe you all would want something more done if I'm pointing out this is a problem. Because telling management, Oftentimes, you know, they're just like, oh, well, we'll get the pest patrol over there, but they don't get to the root of the problem. How has this all affected the health of you and your family? Uh, It has affected my mental health Mm -hmm. more than my physical health than anything. Um, It has caused a major, major, major pull on my depression uh, to the point to where, you know, I cry about it, but you deal with it because there was there was no other options. You know, there's not been an, another option to move anywhere for a long time. And the problem that's going on now, you know, I saw it years ago with me trying to find somewhere to move from the time I moved in. Um, 
I moved in River Church in 2018, and since 2018, I have been seeking somewhere else to move to because, no, I did not want to live with mice. No, I didn't want to have to keep throwing away food, which I might add, I'm still having to throw away food that nobody is reimbursing us on. And, you know, then people might say, oh, well, they live on Section 8, and, you know, they get food stamps while they're complaining. You know, and I'm like, what do you mean? Because... This is our livelihood, you know. This is food for my children, and I'm constantly having to throw away, mm. you know. And then when I'm throwing away food, that means it's food that I'm having to scrounge for towards the end of the month, yeah. you know. Um, and they just all kind of shrug their shoulders about it, even though I've told management, I'm like, look, I'm seeing the source of where these mice are entering into my apartment. Now that everybody's moved out, now there is... <laughs> a takeover of the bugs, something that I've never had a problem with the entire time I've been there. But the last two to three months, the bugs are horrible. Um, and I got an email last month saying that, hey, Virginia, you know, we're still here at the River Chase uh, Complex. You know, if you have any maintenance concerns, you can reach out to us. But my oven went out and they were just like, oh, well, you know, we don't have any money on a Lowe's card to go and get that. And no, they just don't have that uh, part available right now and i'm just like are you guys serious so i've been to, i've been without a working oven for how long it's going on two months now i'm i'm, I'm disgusted and i really am sorry to hear all, yeah. all of this and yeah every i gotta ask you you you've been investigating this for a while can you give us a timeline of how things have gotten to this point yeah, so if we go back to 2016, that's when um, WPLN got some MDHA inspection records, which is two years before Virginia moved in. We saw that ha almost half the time the inspections, they failed as far as, you know, evidence of infestation and fixing the problems. And that gives the property owner or in this case, the property management company that's working for them time to go in and fix the problems. Um, if we kind of like zoom in to around 2018, this is around the time Virginia is moving in and the low income tax credit for the property expires around this time. And that is what they have. That gives them the responsibility to the government. Like we're giving you some kind of benefit, you know, financially. And so this is how long it's supposed to stay affordable. Around that time is when conversations about selling the property really start to pick up. Um, and also we hear like Mar Martha Carroll with Noah, she's reaching out to the old property owner, trying to figure out what's going to happen to this apartment complex and like, what can we do to help the current residents? Um, there's some kind of switching back and forth, but the company that owns it now is Korea. They bought it in December for 30 million. Um, and so their plan is to make it a mixed use development, which is why, you know, this apartment complex has deteriorated so bad that everyone the people that live there, the organizers, the developer, everyone agrees that it needs to be demolished and started over. Now, in the final installment of your series, you talked about the discrimination some of these former and current residents face trying to find new housing with their Section 8 value, vouchers. Mm -hmm. Can you break that down for us? I mean, honestly, Virginia did such a great job. Like when I would talk to Virginia over time, she laid out to me everything. Hey, this is what I'm hearing when I'm calling and I'm telling them when they ask me how many kids I have, I'll get shot down or like, oh, if they ask me if I have a voucher. So honestly, everything she told me, I was saying to a housing expert and they were like, there's some research on this. And literally every claim she made about, you know, about her family structure, about how she's paying 
the research shows that black women are more likely to be discriminated against, especially once you introduce that they have kids, when you interlock that they have Section 8 voucher, all those things work against them. And in the city of Nashville and in the state of Tennessee, landlords can discriminate and just flat out reject you for using a Section 8 voucher, which is what Virginia has heard a lot about. But the bad part is, I mean, I know a Tennessee lawmaker like retweeted my story and was saying we have legislation trying to look into this. But research shows that just means that the landlord will be more low key in how they discriminate. So that, that that's not going to change much. Virginia, Absolutely. tell me what what has your experience been like trying to find a place using a Section 8 voucher? Oh, oh my gosh. Um, I am just uh, I'm, I'm honestly devastated at the fact that, you know, I've, I've pretty much given up on, on looking. Uh, it's always no. It's always no. Uh, I'm sorry when I was taking Section at this time. No, we don't want the Section 8. No, we don't have anything available. It's, no, 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 just all around the board. No. Um, and you started tracking, like, when projects were going to be built when and opening? We, when, when I started um, looking for, for bedrooms back in 2018 or 2019, I realized that the city had only had one one apartment complex with four bedrooms that would accept Section 8, only one. Mm. Um, and they just finished another project the end of 2021 with uh, another complex with four bedrooms, and they filled up immediately to the point to where I was on that waiting list to get go and do an application, and two days before my date, to do my app, they emailed me and said, we have no more vacancies. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's like an utter and blatant, blatant disregard to the fact that there is a need for larger size units for larger families, you know, and when that comes up, what they will throw up is um, they're, they have an opening or they're taking applications for public housing. And I'm like, well, how do they do that when I have a Section 8 voucher and the Section 8 voucher is not accepted in the public housing. Furthermore, for someone like me, that's like a slap in the face. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to go to public housing, I would have never accepted the Section 8 voucher. I accepted the Section 8 voucher for a better, for the, for the chance to raise my children in a better type of environment, a non-stereotypical environment for my children. You know, that I don't have to worry about the violence and the crime as much. Um, Living in River Chase, that was something that I did have to deal with over there. Uh, mm. and, and unfortunately, living in, that, in that, that area, I did not allow my children to go outside as much because there were times, you know, where we may have been sitting on the porch and we just hearing pop, 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 shoot. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm telling my kids, y'all come on, hurry up and get back in the house because I'm not going to know if they're going to be coming down the parking lot still shooting. You know, a lot of times... Um, the shooting was right in in the vicinity where we were. So, you know, like, I, I just, I don't feel like, you know, offering us public housing because they allowed our affordable property to be sold to us when, you know, we feel like, when I feel like there should have been a plan in place to begin with. Because when I've done the research and I've looked and paid attention, all of the public housing um that they have gone in and redid and torn down, they made sure that they placed them somewhere else. They were not left out. Mm -hmm. They were offered another apartment and more public housing, other public housing space, 
or a voucher to move somewhere else. We did not get any of that. And it's just like we were just left to fall through the cracks. Ambrielle, is there any hope of Virginia and other families getting housing and the help they need? Um, well, they are being helped by the Salvation Army and PATH, but those housing organizers are running into the same problems that Virginia is as far as finding options. And I wanted to just explain. So there are two different kind of vouchers. Virginia has a choice voucher, which is supposed to allow her to choose what neighborhood she wants to be in, like, you know, give more diversity of like where you are versus a project based voucher is like she was saying, you are in a public housing building. And since River Chase is privately owned, MDHA doesn't have control over like how they how MDHA did their Envision Casey is like moving people building by building and knocking it down and rebuilding and then moving them. Since it's privately owned, they don't have control over doing that. That would be something that the property owner would have to choose to do themselves. As this series wraps up, what are you going to continue to keep your eye on? I'm really interested in like how the city's codes works, like how much are we funding this if we're supposed to be preserving housing then that's a really important part of us preserving what we have. And just like uh, the cracks that people are able to fall into because of our laws and how we work things here. I'm interested in what you would say, Virginia. Like, I feel like you've given me so many good ideas to like be thinking about. Well, I really would just like to see them um, come up with a better housing solution um, to prevent things like this from happening in the near future. If, it does happen again, you know, but I think with, with what's going on, once they, um, once, once they kind of get everything settled out, I don't think that anything like this, as far as the sale of a section eight property and people become a displaced will be too quick to happen again because, you know, they don't want, they don't really want to catch the backlash from it. You know, like it's all a learning experience for everyone. Um, it's just disheartening at the fact that nobody wants to accept the responsibility. It's like they just want to throw it in the lap of one particular group of people and say, well, you all deal with this when the city doesn't even want to recognize it's, you know, it's the city's problem because we are all residents to this city. Virginia Ambriel, I want to thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Absolutely. You're welcome. That is Virginia Holland. She was joined by WPLN reporter Ambriel Crutchfield, whose series Displaced wrapped up today. You can find it at WPLN.org slash displaced. We have to take a short break. When we come back, it's time for Citizen Nashville. Today is all about mental health. Are you struggling to get the mental health care you need? Do you have advice from personal experience? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Citizen Nashville. We've talked a lot here at WPLN News about how to serve you, our communities, better. So a few times a month, we're bringing you a special hour we're calling Citizen Nashville. Our goal is to answer your questions, round up resources for you, and make sure our leaders hear your needs loud and clear. Today, we're talking about mental health care. If you are struggling, there is a 24-hour Tennessee mental health crisis line called 855-274-7471. That's 855-274-7471. We're going to round up 
other resources later this hour with a few local experts. But first, we've invited a panel of people to talk about how they manage their mental health. Dr. Amy Mariaskin, Woodrow Lucas, and Wade Anderton, welcome to This is Nashville, and thank you all for being here and being open to talking with us today. So, Wood, really, thank you so much. Wood, Woodrow, let's start with you. I understand it's been a bit of a rough and a tough week for you. How are you doing currently? Woodrow, are you with us? I'm doing well, and I, I'm hanging in there, and I'm um, implementing my coping schema that I use uh, to stay above water and to stay uh, beyond the undertow. I'm glad. I'm very glad to hear that. So, you know, I understand that you have schizoaffective disorder. Would you mind sharing what that has been like for you? Yes, it's been it's been a real combination of misery and meaning. Um, there's been a lot of suffering associated with it, but uh, I have a very strong relationship with. Uh, my higher power, and there's been a lot of meaning associated with it too, a lot of opportunities to help other people who are on the same path as me, a lot of opportunities to educate those who don't understand mental illness or who don't have an empathy for mental illness, uh, just as the particulars of severe and persistent mental illness are like. So I would say it's been misery and meaning. It's been joy and hardship. It's been bittersweet. What is schizoaffective disorder? Schizoaffective disorder is, in layman's terms, um, a cross between bipolar and schizophrenia. Uh, you have symptoms of mood swings and uh, mania and depression. But you also have psychosis, which is like hearing voices, having delusions, um, seeing things that are not there. So you see visual hallucinations. So you also have the psychosis aspect of it that schizophrenics would have. But schizoaffective is not as severe on the psychosis side of things and on the delusion side of things as schizophrenia can be, and the mood swings are sometimes easier to manage for schizoaffective than they are for bipolar. What help do you have right now? Well, I have a therapist, Maria Abenchenko. I have a psychiatrist, um, Dr. Paku, and his psychiatric nurse practitioner, Laura Hurst. I have, again, my higher power is the center of my recovery. I make, the, I make my higher power the center of my recovery. So I have God. Mm-hmm. I have parents who are very supportive. I have a brother who is very supportive. I have two daughters, 24 and 14, who really motivate me to stay above water because, you know, I have to be a, a father to them. And I want to raise them right, and I want to be supportive of them, and I want to be a resource to them. So my daughters, Autumn and Gabrielle, are a source of not only support, but exceptional motivation. Mm-hmm. Now, Wade, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. 
I, I, everything is under control. I've been sober 17 years in uh, about 10 days. Congratulations, my friend. Um, well, I, I wish it were 27 years instead. Can you so tell we make those choices when we're ready? Can you tell me what has your personal experience with mental health been like? Mine's been up and down. Um, I grew up in a family of, of alcoholics who were very successful. My father was a medical doctor. My mother was an RN. <clears throat> but yet behind closed doors, there was alcoholism running rampant uh, here in Middle Tennessee as well. And uh, my father was a World War II veteran who suffered from late stage PTSD and no one really realized it. After he retired at 65, he became a serious alcoholic and ended up committing suicide. And then a few years later, my brother committed suicide after his, he had a 10 year sobriety kick. And my mental health suffered because I was raised to be a man and I grieved and I didn't grieve my father's death properly. And it ate at me and then depression set in, which had affected my whole family. My father referred to his depression during medical school in the forties as uh, the family darkness. Because hmm. back then there was no clinical diagnosis of depression. Can you tell me how did you first seek treatment to help yourself? Um, first in couples um, counseling. And then later on, after I got sober, I realized that there was something going on. I was not whole. And I, I was sober, but I was not whole. And I knew someone through a sobriety program who was a, a therapist and I started seeing her and she helped me because I was not able, I had not dealt with the grief. And this was 15 years after my father's suicide. Mm -hmm. And she, she helped me. The, the wonderful thing, as I told you, producer yesterday about talk therapy, you have an unbiased objective human who will listen to you talk. And I'm a firm believer in saying things out loud has an incredible power to freeing the soul. Just saying it out loud. It, it, it doesn't have to be too, it, it's best to have someone there, obviously. Now, but saying things loud that are bothering you, it's freeing. Mm -hmm. It gives you control over them. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me what the past year has been like for you? Uh, well, I'm very politically minded and the tribalism of our political system today has been terribly distressing to me over the last six years. Um, and it continues on. Um, about three years ago, I, I went through cancer five years ago. I'm, I've been clean five years so that's good. But about three years ago, I told my wife, I said, I'm, I'm going in for a checkup. You know, I need a tune-up. And I, I tracked down a, um, LSCW and, and uh, uh, 
went to six months, once a week therapy, just, just to get a tune up between dealing with the therapy and dealing with what was going on politically. Um, and it was great. And after a number of months, she said, you don't need to come back. You're fine. If you're just tuning in, this is Citizen Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. It's a special hour dedicated to mental health. Tweet us your experiences and questions at This Is Nashville. Now, Dr. Mary Askin, you're a therapist here in town, and you specialize in OCD and anxiety. Tell me more about your practice. Of course, and thanks for having me on here. So we are a practice in the in Brentwood. We specialize, like you said, in anxiety and OCD across the lifespan. We work with kids as young as four, and we work all the way up through older adulthood. We have, um, I think, about 17 therapists now. We're also a training site for some of the local universities. So um, we have student interns as well who are able to offer sessions at reduced rates because accessibility is really something that's important to us as a practice. You know, I think it's fair to say that the pandemic caused a spike in anxiety levels for a lot of us. Have you seen that in your practice? Yes, absolutely. We have. We have been flooded. Um, We've been on a wait list and unfortunately a lot of other providers around uh, the city and around, I, I would assume, you know, broader the nation, the world are seeing increases. And the research bears this out as well, that there was a study in 2020 that came out showing that people, and this was at the end of 2020, that there had been a threefold increase in reported levels of anxiety. Mm. So yeah, we're, we're all feeling it as therapists. Now you're a licensed therapist, but that, you know, that doesn't mean that you don't have to manage your mental health. What have mm-hmm. you experienced over the past few years? Yeah, you know, it is interesting because in some ways I feel like it's pretty rare that we're going through things uh, as a society sort of together with our clients. So we are, like you said, we're not immune to the stress and the anxiety and, um, you know, really the uncertainty of the time. I think especially at the beginning of the pandemic, um, anxiety tends to, you know, it has a few ingredients that can really increase its Uh, potency, one of which is uncertainty, um, and one of which is avoidance. And given that it was recommended by the CDC that we avoid certain things that would otherwise have uh, brought us joy or helped us to feel connected, um, I think I was feeling in particular, um, just as everybody else was really cut off from some of the things that I love, and then also grappling with the uncertainty and kind of moral decision making of Um, you know, how how do I both as a clinician and as a business owner, let alone as a human, how do I conduct myself in a way that's going to be, you know, uh, moral and and conscientious, as well as still really serving people who who need to be served. You know, Woodrow, we just heard Dr. Mary Askin talk about her need to manage her own mental health. What do you want people to know about the difficulty of managing our mental health? Well, I really believe that there are systemic issues endemic to the mental health system that make managing your mental health more difficult. For instance, getting the right meds that you need, uh, collaborating with the right psychiatrist, uh, having a sense of autonomy and locus of control, 
and self-efficacy in your recovery uh, as you work with your therapist and making sure that you're not making your therapist into your priest, but realizing that they are just another person who can help you. Um, I also think that uh, the, just the, the natural volatility of life is very difficult for recovery because you have a reaction that creates a trauma, then that trauma creates a false belief, and that false belief creates even further trauma, and it becomes a vicious cycle. So I think that it's important to have, you know, coping schema in place where you're like, okay, I'm not going to panic. I'm not going to lose my temper. I'm not going to run away. I'm not going to overreact. You know, you're going to have certain rules for yourself so that you can keep yourself within a certain bell curve of moderation so that as life's volatility takes place, you don't get swept to and fro by that volatility. And then lastly, I think that um, sometimes our own lack of assertion and really advocating for ourselves in situations can be a big impediment to our recovery and, and to our mental health and of feeling good about ourselves. And I just think that's something you have to work on over time is to be assertive with others and know that you are worth standing up for. You know, Wade, Woodrow was just talking about the tumult that life can bring, but also standing up and being active for yourself. You know, what do you, what do you want to share about the difficulties of finding the help that you need? Well, <clears throat> Cleo, one thing, that I know Dr. Mary Askin will, I feel like she'll agree with me, and I speak strictly anecdotally. We have to want to be helped in order to get any sort of relief from therapy. But one of the most important things of dealing with a talk therapist, and I speak strictly from talk therapy because I do not have experience with a psychiatrist, I have only a psychologist and that type of therapy but sheer total rigorous honesty is required from the patient because the therapist knows your bs in them before you do and they know when they're getting getting a story rather than the truth and if you don't give them the truth you're wasting everyone's time and, and that's imperative for for receiving quality treatment. That's tough. It really shouldn't fall on one individual alone to get help. But quickly, what do you want from the city? What do you want to see from the city when it comes to mental health care, Doctor Mary Askin? Mm, that's great. That's a great question. I think sort of you know I, I can speak mostly to being a specialty provider and working with. Um, OCD and anxiety, but I think that this goes for, like, I would imagine for sure it goes for things like schizoaffective disorder and other, um, and people who are working, who are um, grappling with sobriety or, or substance use, things like that. But I just think that right now there's sort of like the awareness of, um, you know, what constitutes uh, certain mental health issues. So for example, I know, um, 
with, with OCD, there's kind of this stereotype that it's just cleaning and checking and things like that. And it's a really complex disorder um, wherein a lot of people will have intrusive, unwanted, violent thoughts and things like that with no, uh, no intent to carry those out. They're very much um, departing from their values. And I think some of it's just basic education of like, what is OCD, you know, real OCD. I know there's hashtag real OCD. Mm-hmm. What is schizoaffective disorder? So I think if there was some kind of um, like public awareness campaign there, that would be one place to start. Um, and then I think as well, um, you know, just increasing accessibility of these kinds of services and pathways to these services, because it's quite different if you're looking for a specialty clinic, or if you're looking to use something um, through your insurance, or if you're looking to, or if you're uninsured, it's different, or um, sobriety resources, you know, EAP, a lot of people don't know employee assistance programs. So those are just some of the ideas that I have in terms of, you know, um, citywide, what we could do. Thanks to my guests, Dr. Amy Mariaskin, Wade Anderton, and Woodrow Lucas. Thanks to you all for coming onto the show and sharing your stories with us. Really, really appreciate it. If you are struggling, there is a 24-hour Tennessee mental health crisis line. Call 855-274-7471. That's 855-274-7471. We have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion on mental health care and answer your questions. And it is not too late to send those in. Just tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Citizen Nashville. It is important to have an understanding of the resources available when looking for help in addressing your mental health. No matter if you have health care or if you're uninsured, these are resources that can help you. We know you have questions and we want to help. So if you're struggling, there is a 24-hour Tennessee mental health crisis line. Call 1-855-274-7471. Again, that's 855-274-7471. My next guests can help answer your questions and keep them coming by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. Robin Nobling is the executive director of NAMI, Davidson County, our county's branch of National Alliance on Mental Illness. And Sheldon Walker is the suicide prevention coordinator for Metro Health. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank Thank you, Khalil. Thank you so much for having us. So, Robin, let's start with you. How did you get involved in the mental health field? Well, um, you know, I'm NAMI, and uh, NAMI is an organization of lived experience. And so mine started very young. My father was uh, seven. I was seven when my father developed paranoid schizophrenia. And then I had a sister with developmental delays that also developed a dual diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder. So I've been pretty much been living with it my whole life. And um, it's, it's really what has um, made me more compassionate and, um, you know, encouraged my advocacy, curiosity and desire to help. Sheldon, what about you? Um, mine was kind of a lived experience, like Robin said, growing up um, in Chicago. Had a friend, I um, think when I was in sixth or seventh grade, that um, died by suicide. 
Um, it had an everlasting effect on me um, going into my adult years. And, you know, I decided that that was what I wanted to do was help people in crisis and, and get them the resources that they need. And better yet, the hope that, you know, you don't have to stay where you're at. Now, what does NAMI provide, Robin? Well, NAMI provides um, support, education, advocacy, and awareness. And we do that with uh, almost things that we do are peer-to-peer. So anybody that you come into contact with uh, one of our free support groups, um, and we have free support groups for people with lived experience and caregivers. Uh, I am somebody that's a two-hatter. That means I have the the caregiver experience with my family, but I also suffer from seasonal affective disorder. So I also have a lived experience. Mm -hmm. And so we have mixed support groups. And uh, we also started during the pandemic to help reduce the isolation for people with mental health conditions. We started a socialist peer support group for them. We have uh, free and those are free. We have free education classes for people with lived experience to help them better understand their experience. And we have free uh, intensive caregiver education classes for caregivers to understand how to support and um, give empathy while taking care of themselves. We also advocate out in the community. I, Sheldon and I, um, you know, I serve on a, a, a committee that, that Sheldon's involved with. And uh, we are connected to all the major uh, providers in the area. And that includes uh, the Police Department, the Sheriff's Office, we're part of the uh, Partners in Care program um, and help train the police officers going out on mental health calls. And then advocacy also includes for us um, legislative policy and Mm -hmm. and being involved that way. We serve on the Mayor's uh, Behavioral Health and uh, Wellness Council. And and then we just go out publicly. Anybody that wants to ask us to come out and... um, give information about mental health or help them with an, an, in, in an area that they're working with, whether it's a business or a church or a school, we're there for that. So the pandemic has come up a few times this hour. We got a voicemail at This Is Nashville from Lucy Sesnick. She's a new therapist working in the nations who called in to tell us that the effect of the pandemic on our mental health is really multi-layered. Mm-hmm. First off, there's the event that happens, the pandemic the sickness, the death, the loss of life, and the loss of seeing people we love and the loss of connection with others. There's the adjustment to changes like wearing masks and learning how to take COVID tests and making decisions about what we will and won't do. So that's the first part, the what happened part. But there's also a really important second piece, and that's what we decide about what happened. Why did this happen? As a therapist, I most often see people wrestling with the new whys that the pandemic brought about. Because the past couple of years happened to all of us, I think there's this risk for everybody to say, well, I should just get over it. It happened to everyone and we all need to just move on. But here's the thing. If to survive 2020, you decided to quarantine alone so you didn't get sick and spent a lot of time telling yourself, I don't really like people anyway, and I'm better off alone. And now, in 2022, you have to be amongst people again. That might feel really daunting. But it's not the pandemic event that makes it daunting. It's the adaptive behavior that you're wrestling with. The days you told yourself, I'm better off alone anyway. 
in 2020, that made a ton of sense and it kept you alive, right? But if you're still believing that and that belief is still driving your behavior, then going to work in an office, say, um, is really hard. And unpacking all of that with a therapist may be really helpful. I think there's this big risk of people stuffing that down or pretending they're fine. And then we see it show up as depression, anxiety, addiction, and other things. And I think people need to know they don't have to wait until things are really bad to seek help from a therapist. Now, Robin, for those of us who are seeking help, walk me through the steps. Woodrow mentioned this in the previous segment. How do you go about finding a therapist that is right for you? You know, and that's that's a really good question. And and right for you may take a little time. It may be more than one. And and while you're doing this, you're having a hard time. And so that can be really difficult when um, you may have some brain fog, you may have delusional things that are going on, and, and, and that can be really hard. So what I would suggest is, um, one, you can call uh, Nami Davidson, let us know what's going on. Um, we can, and, and we're going to ask you questions. There were other things brought up. This has been a great segment because there's been a lot of different things brought up. Do you have insurance? Don't you have insurance? What's your income? Do you have an EAP? There's a lot of different questions that we would ask. What's your age? You may qualify for things if you're a senior. You may qualify for things if you've got a child. Um, you know, um, are you going to a college that has a, a counseling center? Um, so there are different things that we're going to ask anytime anybody individually is decided, you know, it's time for me. I think just what we just heard. I, I, think, um, I think I need to talk to somebody. Things that you're going to do are um, psychology uh, today has a great website. And on that website, you can actually um, go in there and it'll filter down. Do you want a male therapist? Do you want a female therapist? What's your issue? What's your insurance? And you can kind of filter those things down. Once you filter down, some tips that we're going to give you are pay attention to when you call that business, so to speak, that that therapist office. How are you being treated? Do they sound, do they sound like they have the time for you? Mm-hmm. Do they sound like they care? Um, uh, we know that, that the therapist in the mental health community has been open, overwhelmed. They were short-staffed anyway. We had a shortage of mental health people before this started. But, but see, you know, look at the response. See what you're getting. Take notes. Keep yourself a little file and take some notes. And then when you do find someone it is very important. It's they're going to ask you a lot of questions because um, they need to know to be able to help you. That can be uncomfortable, making yourself vulnerable to someone. Mm-hmm. But give it some time. Don't go through the first you know session and go, "This isn't helping." It's not. The first few sessions are information gathering. Give it some time. And the other thing is, you're going to be asked to talk about things that are making you sad, that are making you uncomfortable. That's going to be tough. But if you keep going, then you can get to the other side. So this is a process. This is not one and done, not at all. Yeah. And um, so that's really important. But, um, you know, uh, we're willing to help if you, if you, you know, need to a starting point. But um, there are, you know, you can do that, too. And now, Sheldon, sure, Sheldon yeah. I, I, I noticed you smile a little bit when she said, you know, you're going to talk to a therapist and you have to give it more than just one chance. You know, how do you feel about that? Um, <clears throat> Robin, she's absolutely right. Um, just 
when you, when you speak to somebody and you don't know and you want to share everything, you you kind of feel uncomfortable. So the the first time that you go and talk to a therapist, you you have to feel comfortable. Those that's a time where they get to know you, you get to know them. So like anything in life, if you expect success or or to meet your goal after one trip to the therapist, it, it's not going to happen. It has to be that relationship has to be developed where it's a trust on both sides, not just um, you and the therapist, but the therapist and you as well. It has to be trust on both sides where both people can open up and then the therapist can start answering more intrusive questions. And, and like Robin said, that's how you get to the other side. And it just takes time. Like like anything in life, it's going to take time to get the success that you want to get out of seeing a therapist. Yeah, we've been soliciting input from the community for this episode. We got a voicemail from Abby Culbertson from Insight Counseling Center, which takes a spiritually integrated approach to mental health care. Let's listen. Let's talk about the intersection of religion and mental health. Because religion runs deep in the experience of our lives. Even if you don't claim any religion, we can't help but be influenced by the religious culture of our families, our communities. How do certain spiritual beliefs that we hold affect our mental health? And how does our mental health affect our beliefs in the communities we're involved in? So, you know, Sheldon, you're a co-chair of a group called Suicide Prevention and African-American Faith Community Coalition. You know, how does this group, what does, what does it provide for the community? Wow, um, SPAC is Suicide Prevention in the African American Faith Community Coalition. In the African American community, you know, we were taught that when you deal with a crisis, when you deal with a mental illness, there's nothing wrong with you. Be strong. I think somebody said it. Get over it. No, um, when it comes to mental health, it's nothing you can get over. It's, it's something that you have to manage. So our coalition here in Davidson County consists of uh, clergy, consists of agencies, therapists, uh, Metro Police. We bring all these people to have a seat at the table to discuss how we can best impact our citizens. We understand that in the African-American community, the pastors um, are the first people usually to get approached um, from their congregation. And we want to make sure that we equip the pastors and clergy um, with the tools that they are able to address if somebody comes to them with suicidal ideations, and that's called QPR. Mm -hmm. uh, QPR is question, um, per persuade, and refer. And we want to make sure that they have those tools. If, if somebody says, hey, I want to hurt myself, I'm thinking about hurting myself, we make sure that they know exactly what to do when they encounter a person like that. Now, we spoke with Elliot Pinsley, who is a licensed clinical social worker from the Behavioral Health Foundation, and he talks about the importance of considering a person holistically. Substance use is part of mental health, but we don't always think of it that way in terms of the community. A lot of folks think they're separate things and they're not always um, prioritizing one with the other. But it's very important because the two are very much co-occurring a lot of the time. It is it is rare that you have someone with a substance use disorder that also does not have underlying mental health issues and addressing the mental health issues that are there um, and trauma and other things that may have happened in this person to this person or in this person's life stressors, et cetera, is extremely important to their, their addiction recovery. So you really have to look at a person holistically. 
So, Sheldon, what kind of resources are available for those of us who are struggling with substance use and addiction? Well, that's one of the things I pride myself in is making sure that resources are available because people need to know. Uh, one of the greatest resources you have on the line is uh, Robin Nolan. Mm-hmm. Um, her organization, NAMI, is exceptional, um, exceptional um, organization. And um, Robin didn't mention that a lot of their services are free. Um, Centerstone is another organization um, who he- who can help deal with mental illness and substance abuse. Also, um, Nashville Family and Children's Services, um, they have a number if, if somebody's in crisis that you can reach out to them. So real quick, I know that the government is going to address mental health. We have this new 988 number. Can you briefly tell us what that's about? Well, we're excited about um, the 988 number. This is something that's been in the works for a couple of years. Um, we understand that a lot of calls that, that come to 911 is dealing with mental health crisis. So here in Davidson County, um, Robin mentioned partners in care. This is where a police officer goes out to a call, um, but they're trained with partners in care, and they go out with a licensed social worker to help them um, facilitate the call and, and make it more easy for them to deal with. So 988 um, it's supposed to launch in, I think, July 16th, and um, it's it's an absolute needed um, number. That way we won't um, clog up the line with 911 with true emergencies, and, and we can give the people the okay. help that they need. Okay. Really quickly, Robin, what do you see, what do you want to see the city do when it comes to mental health care and what they can provide for our communities? Well, I think they're 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 doing it. I mean, I think they're 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 definitely working on it. Um, one of the things that was worked on that came about as a result of everybody working together is having the new uh, walk-in 24-hour crisis center over at the Mental Health Cooperative. Uh, that's at 250 Cumberland Bend, and you can walk in 24 hours a day. In you know whatever um, your your situation might be, if you feel like you're going to harm yourself, you're going to harm somebody else, or you just can't get a handle on your um, on your stuff, as we like to call it, because it, it's never one thing. So um, so I think that is one thing. Um, I really, in addition to partners in care, when you are having police and social and um, masters level go out. That's right. We, Thank we you. are also having the... Um, Thank you so much, Robin. We are out of time. I want to thank Robin Nobling, Executive Director of NAMI, Davidson County, and Sheldon Walker, Suicide Prevention Coordinator for Mental Health. Thank you both for being with us and offering us these great resources. Thanks to everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville. It's a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, Tasha A.F. Limley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.